and welcome to Associated, a podcast making venture capital more accessible. My name is Francesca and I'm joined today by my co-host Petra. Hi guys. And we're so excited to be welcoming Freddie this evening, who's an associate at Augmentum. Freddie talks about how sending cold emails on LinkedIn got him into VC. He talks about Augmentum's unusual structure and how his time at the Boston Consulting Group has impacted his career now. Hello, Freddie. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So let's kick off with talking a little bit about your background. How did you get into VC? So my first contact with VC actually was with Augmentum, but in their previous fund. So I was working at a big four accountancy firm doing an internship when I was at uni, and it, it just became pretty clear that it wasn't for me. So while I was there, I got kind of bored, and I started reaching out on LinkedIn just to people that had done cool stuff. And I found Tim, who's our, well, who's Augmentum CEO, and basically his backstory was setting up Crushed. So like, do you know the juice, juice restaurants or like kind of juice bars? Yep. So no, he, they're good. So he set the first one up way, way back when in, in New York and then um, in, uh, in Canary Wharf, and then he became part of the founding team of Betfair, and then went off to start as VC, and I thought all these things come really cool. So, so a bit of an underachiever. Bit of an underachiever. <laughs> yeah, I just thought I would just go over to his place and check it out and see if I could whip it into shape. So I, I, I sent him, <laughs> him a message and just basically asked, can I come and work for you for free as soon as I'm done here um, for a few weeks? And he said, yeah. So anyway, I did it. It was like crazy cool. Supported a guy on some project he started doing in, uh, out in San Francisco. Cool. Um, so did that, went back to uni, uh, finished all that stuff and then came back and would have loved to have gone straight into VC, but it just didn't really seem like something that was viable from uni at the time. And I didn't really know anyone in there and Tim wasn't hiring. It was just a team of two at the time. So I went off, uh, did my time in the corporate world. I went to BCG, a strategy consulting firm, but kind of stayed in touch with Tim ever since. Um, and then flash forward two years later, I'm chatting to him uh, and actually looking for some common opportunities, trying to get to somewhere close to startups. It was really all I wanted to do was either potentially go and start my own thing up or get involved with startups in some way, shape or form. And I kind of had an idea of what VC was at this point. So I was trying to get a secondment in VC. Um, and Tim basically said, hey, look, actually, we're going to try an IPO, a VC fund. Would you like to help with the IPO process? And I said, yeah, okay, I mean, that sounds awesome. I'm going to have to talk to the guys here, obviously see if it's a viable, so common opportunity, might be a couple months, when do you need me to start? He was like, we're actually starting tomorrow, so can you come along? <laughs> so that was a no. Um, but basically he said that if we do manage to pull this off, if we IPO, we're gonna need a team, would you be, would you be interested? So I said yes, and three months later, I'm sat at my desk and I'm literally just refreshing the London Stock Exchange because they've gone out, they've been you know, completely busting their butts around London trying to raise capital. Um, but on the day, you just don't know whether you're going to raise the capital or not. Um, so I was literally just refreshing the internet, refreshing the internet. Has the money been raised? Has the money been raised? Is this company going to be IPO? And it just does. And I've got my resignation letter next to me on the desk. So I just walk straight over, hand it in two weeks later. And because you were really good about it, they kind of let me wrap up my project quickly because as soon as Augmentum and IPO, they've got 94 million in capital ready to be deployed and completely ready to go. Um, so I wrapped up what I was doing with my team three weeks later, I was out and, and starting Augmentum. So I kind of looped my way all the way back again to the new fund. So you previously mentioned that you had cold messaged people on LinkedIn when you were looking for a role in venture. So what do you think made you stand out in your approaches? Um, I think I think some of it is timing, which is which is not necessarily in your control, right? Um, so I guess there's an element there of, you know, if I, if someone asks me how do I reach out and kind of get access to people that are working in VC and go for a coffee with them, I, I would say spread your net, right? Because some people are going to be too busy at certain times. Some people might be looking for play people, and I think I got a little bit lucky in that respect. Um, it's hard for me to know what went right for me, but I think when I did reach out, 
maybe naively, but maybe it worked in my favor. I think I was just really honest. Um, I said what I was doing at the time. I was working at an internship in a, in a big four firm. I was saying what I enjoyed about being there. Um, but I also said what I was finding frustrating, right? Like I, there was a lot of structure, which was great. I was learning a lot, but I really wanted to be in a looser environment. I really wanted uh, more responsibility to run with things. I really wanted to get close to... Uh, to founders and understand how they built things because I wanted to do that thing and that kind of thing in the future. Um, and I basically just said, look, I am insanely hungry and eager to learn. I think potentially when I reached out and, and I did get through to Tim, that was that attitude might have been something that resonated with him. So he actually went to a, he ended up going to Bain before he went to do other stuff. So it just so happened that he was also in consulting before he then got the bug and wanted to go out. So I guess you never know when your story is going to align with someone else's. And I, I guess my advice there is to be really honest about what you're after and why you're after it. And with, you know, eight out of 10 people that might not work at all, but with two people out of that 10, they might kind of think, oh yeah, okay, that actually resonates with me. And I think it's that personal that personal hook that often kind of gets you that coffee and and then you're off. So you were saying about bugs. So how how did you catch the startup entrepreneur bug? I don't know about you, but it wasn't exactly very obvious when I went to university or with my parents' generation that this is, was available. I mean, sort of the Mark Zuckerbergs of this world was kind of almost a shining star on a horizon rather than something that I could do myself. And it only was until I got into it at university in the entrepreneurial society, I sort of fell into it. So is there a story there? I think it's my mum's fault. Um, so she she was a, like a medical doctor for a long, long period of time, a neuroradiologist, so uh, things to do with brains. Um, and, you know, after a long period of, doing that she decided to break off and set up her own clinic basically so that's awesome yeah it's super cool um so it's kind of a massive inspiration on that side a huge a huge uh kind of forced appreciation for how hard founders work um i think in some respects it's it scared me off as much as has enticed me towards it it's a real commitment and you've got to be unbelievably passionate um, with what you're doing. And I think she is. So she's setting up basically kind of like the leading clinical trials in dementia and Alzheimer's, which is what she was doing before as a doctor, but now kind of taking it to the next level by creating her company around it. So I think I think I grew up around the entrepreneurship bug. And then there's as much of, uh, I think setting something up would be just an incredible learning experience and to actually kind of like create value out of nothing. I think that's the thing that sort of inspires me. I think in my more overly bullish times I can get a bit uh disenfranchised with any other option um so I've kind of always had that as a bit of a that's what I want to do at some point um and I thought about leaving university and going straight into it and to be honest I didn't have like a golden idea to do it and I thought okay I'll go and I'll go and learn as much as I possibly can and, and then do it and I think I'm still on that learning as much as I possibly can road um but uh yeah I mean when I when I spoke to Tim and joined Augmentum I did say look, I'm leaving BCG. And one of the things that I loved about joining Momentum was that it was a VC, but it was also like a startup, right? I mean, they just raised capital. The company came into existence two weeks before I walked in the front door and we've been growing ever since. So that's really cool. Um, but, you know, I said like, you know, if a really cool idea comes up, I got to go and do it. And, you know, he's not, he, he's much more of an entrepreneur in many ways than he is sort of an investor or certainly an entrepreneur first and then investor second. So I think he gets that. So still, still that's what I would... Uh, I kind of have in, have in the back of my mind. But at the minute, I'm very happy learning a huge amount. Thanks, Freddie. So for, a, I guess a lot of people might not be f super familiar with Augmentum. So do you want to maybe give us a little bit of a bio about the fund? 
Yeah, definitely. So I, I guess in the smallest possible nutshell, Augmentum is a fintech focused VC. We're based out of London and we invest in fintechs around Europe. And so really, we like to have a company that has some presence in Europe just because we like to be close and be on hand to support. Um, but actually, they can be from anywhere in the world. Um, but it makes it a little bit easier if they're close to hand. We start investing at Series A and then we invest right the way through to pre-IPO. Um, um, but basically, the fund's been around since 2010 in one way, shape, or form, and always looking at fintech. And that really comes from the, the founder's experience um, back in their days when um, they set up an online gambling company called Flutter.com, which really early on merged with Betfair, um, and then kind of went through to completely disrupt the gambling industry. And the parallels are, are quite interesting between what happened in gambling in the 2000s and what's happening in financial services in 2010s. But in the sort of briefest, crudest way, in, in the gambling industry at the time, you had three incumbents, like your William Hills, Labrooks, Corals, um, almost entirely offline, uh, pretty cruddy customer experience, driving high margins, not adapting to tech, just stagnating, really. And in the space, about four years, Betfair was twice the size of all of them combined. So just utter disruption of the space. And in 2010, um, when Tim and Richard, the founders, wanted to set up a VC, they wanted to do two things. One, I think they really wanted to go after the financial services space, just after the financial crash, and look like there was a huge amount of opportunity there. But I think also they were really keen to be a VC that actually was quite hands-on um, and had that entrepreneur's perspective and could support the founders in that way. I think before then, and, and nowadays it really is a different landscape, I think most VCs really do provide a lot of additional value. I think before, you know, back in 99, 2000, it was the days where it was a bit more, here's a check and, and get on with it. And that first fund went on for about eight years. It was a typical LPGP structure. So it had its life cycle, it had an LP. Um, and one of the things that we found during that fund, and like I said, I worked for the guys a little bit um, back in the old version of the fund, was that when you're only looking at fintech, um, it can become apparent that those companies sometimes take a little bit longer to get traction, to get that product market fit. It's just a super complex sector. Uh, there's all sorts of regulatory hurdles. There's deep conservatism uh, amongst customers. I think much deeper, actually, than most people thought, whether that's consumers um, being slow to adopt fintech in certain ways. And a good example is like there's challenger banks everywhere, right? But not many people are using them for their for their current accounts, for example. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, and I know that a massive part of you guys then choosing to set up the new Augmentum Fund as a publicly listed vehicle was exactly to make sure that you could, I guess, provide this longer term, more flexible funding for fintechs that because of those dynamics um, can take a little longer. And I know that we're going to talk about, you know, a little bit more about how the publicly listed structure actually helps you do this later on um, because it is quite a unique VC model. But I'm really curious about, you know, going back to this customer conservatism topic, is there a stat on how many people actually stick to the same bank account? So one stat that I really like is in 2008, after the financial crash, the Competition Markets Authority was super keen uh, to get people to spread their wealth around different banks, right? Like almost everyone's money was in six banks, like the core six UK retail banks. So they put special kind of switching legislation in. They just made it really easy for people to switch. They really tried to encourage uh, competition. And in 2018, so just last year, they did a report to find out how well they've done. Like how many people have moved outside of those core six banks and really spread the competition around. And I think in 2008, something like 83, 84% of current accounts were held in the top six banks. And in 2018, it was 87%. So even though everyone generally 
thinks their banks are pretty crud. Um, there's not a huge amount of trust, particularly in the last 10 years. Um, people complain about them a lot. And, you know, there's a lot of other options that are starting to come through in terms of financial services, not necessarily just the neobanks, but the kinds of propositions that banks offer. And still no one's really switching, right? Um, so I think, I think it's a really interesting time for fintech because there's been a huge amount of progression in the last 10 years. There's very few people that wouldn't know what fintech is. There's very few people that don't have some kind of fintech app or application on their phone or have used it in some way, shape or form. And yet, in some respects, the market hasn't moved. So we kind of very much like to think of this as the, the sort of end of the beginning, if you like. We've really picked up some traction. Um, and I think what really has happened, even though there hasn't been a massive dent in some of the core financial services in the last 10 years, what's happened is the relationship between banks and their customers has irrevocably changed. So what customers expect from their banks or from their financial services is for sure different. Um, and as we've seen the kind of disintermediation and disruption and kind of segmentation of all different financial services starting to be offered to customers, um, and you see their NPS scores are like through the roof and the original banks are really low, I think that's when you're going to start to see much more mass consumer adoption. It's just taken longer than people would think. Yeah. And, and what are people demanding that they weren't five years ago? So some of it's super simple, right? I think some of it is, is just an element of trust, transparency, um, speed, just ease of access. Like I don't want to have to go down to my bank, which is open between nine and five when I'm at work on weekdays and maybe open for like three hours on the weekend. I want to be able to do something from my hand. And like the technology is there, right? It's been there for a long period of time. Um, banks have just been really slow to integrate that into their services. And to some extent, it's not their fault. Like they're working on really old tech stacks. They're not not trying. And I think actually more than ever, they are really trying, whether that's by you know, acquiring other fintechs or putting sort of huge amounts of capital reserves into improving their tech. But it's tough. Like, it's really tough. Um, and I think also people's expectations have changed. You don't expect to get all your financial services um, from six retail banks that are on your high street. Like, you know that there are other options. Um, and when you start to do that, you start and you start kind of fragmenting up the financial services, you can start to get um, really clever in the kinds of services that you can offer customers. Um, and you can start to get really kind of economically savvy as well. You can offer cheaper products because you're not cross-subsidizing other things. Um, you don't have to deal with massive overheads that the banks have to. For one, you don't have the high street stores, but you don't have these old tech stacks. Um, so you can start to offer really finely honed products um, that suit the customers really well. But I think... Um I remember having a conversation with you where how you approach fintech at Augmentum is quite loose. Like how I envision fintech is kind of like Monzo or Soldo or Curve, but actually you you are a little bit more flexible. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think the interesting stuff that's going on in fintech is kind of right around the ecosystem of it. So it's not just your bread and butter consumer financial product. Um, now, there's some of those that are super interesting, like we're invested in monies, which is a challenger bank straight to consumers. Um, you kind of move up the chain, if you like, to SMEs. And, you know, we've invested in Tide, which is a challenger bank for small businesses. iWalker, it's a lender for small businesses. Um, but you've also got infrastructure that sits within existing institutions that's like utter garbage. I mean, it's, it's awful. Lots of it really is. Um, so we also want to fund the enablers that are improving that. So, you know, we've got uh, a nice example is Onfido, which is an ID verification company, right? Like that... That technology in and of itself is not a financial product, but these guys are serving as well as, you know, the likes of, uh, you know, transport companies and anything like that. They're also serving financial institutions um, and the same tech that is going into 
you know, making a Monzo uh, KYC process and onboarding process really nice and simple. Of course, the major banks want that as well. Um, so it's also kind of these enablers, the rails that sits behind these financial institutions that we're really keen on on funding and kind of getting out there. So, so going back to your your time at, at BCG, I think a lot of people, you know, for them, BCG is like is the end game. You know, it's one of the top firms in the whole world, one of the top consulting firms. What made you think or I guess, second guess your long-term career at a firm like that? Mm. So I think, so I, I, I sort of went into BCG kind of with the thought in mind that I'd be there for a few years and, and probably leave just because I kind of had this ambition to go and start something up or get close, close to the startup world. I actually got really enticed when I was there because it's, I mean, it was like an incredible place. I mean, the people there are, ridiculously smart, insanely hardworking, you're solving massive problems um, for massive companies. And you really, I mean, you really use your brain. I was felt out of my depth every single day for the whole time I was there. Um, but the th in a weird way, the things that I liked most about it were the reasons that also kind of propelled me on further into VC. So like, for example, I loved working with the clients. Like you get under the skin of it, you start there on day one you don't know anything about this company and you have to get involved and get under it and build the relationships and I love that and you kind of get to know their passion and understand it and kind of further that mission so I love that but I thought oh shit well that's going to be even cooler if I'm doing it for a startup where there's only kind of like you know 20 to 100 people in the room and it's sort of at first beginnings and there's so much kind of growth still to come and the story's all beginning so it's kind of wanted to get involved with companies journeys but I thought even cooler to do it earlier on I think I loved helping solve big challenges one of the things that i really found tricky at bcg was you put a lot of effort in and you put, produce some really good work and then you know it's the nature of the job right you kind of hand over your advice and you say like this is where i think you can go and there's an, a massive amount of satisfaction and then watching that business go off and do it but i kind of always had this itch of like i want to go and kind of help them do it i want to stay with them on the journey i don't want to leave now um so that was a big reason to go into vc you kind of you know, you do all this hard like analysis, the kind of things you might do at BCG, build the models, you work out if a company's interesting and then you think, yeah, okay, let's do it. And then you build the relationship along the way and you do it. And then that's when the journey starts. Like then you start helping the startup and like you're completely wrapped up in their journey and you go from there. So I think I just wanted to get completely involved in a way where at BCG you could get like pretty involved, but then you had to step away. Um, and I think the final thing was that I loved about BCG was I get I think I get bored quite quickly and BCG you change project every you know few months like an entirely new industry new team it could be a new country uh, entirely new challenge and you have to start from scratch again um, and VC is like that on steroids I mean like you can see 10 companies in a day and each one is super interesting in its own way and so I loved BCG it was incredible it was unbelievable good schooling um, but I think I just, I think I want, I think all of the things that made BCG great when you're working for big companies, for me, became even more exciting when you're working for small companies. Um, so VC kind of seemed like the right, the right place to go. Yeah, I know, exactly. It's kind of a, a perfect environment to relate things that you think are really brilliant and the traits in entrepreneurs you really admire. And, you know, I think you've got so much to learn from founders. Yeah, it's um, definitely like a movable feast of just insane talent, ambition, drive, energy. I mean, it's nuts. Like, you just exactly. kind of pick it up wherever you go. You kind of, it's just like a privilege, basically, to be able to sit and watch it and learn learn about it. On the note of schooling, so the MBBs are kind of known for, 
you know, very extensive training programs and onboarding and making sure that you're up to speed with everything. How did that compare <laughs> to your first few weeks in venture? Yeah. So, so my first day in venture, I came in the door and I went over to my desk and I sort of like, you know, like first day of school, I got my pencil case out and, and I, and I said, all right, here I am. What, what can I, what can I help you with? And Tim and Richard, the, the two founders, they were the only people in the office because it was so early on. Um, well, like, what do you mean? I mean, what do you mean? What can we help? What can you help us with? And I was like, well, well, I'm here. It's my first, it's my first day. Like you must have some work for me. And they were like, no, we're doing our work. Go <laughs> like, go and do your work. And I was like, well, oh, okay. Then they were like, yeah, you heard me. Like, find some interesting startups. Tell me if they're good or not. And like, go through all the whole process. And then, and then we do it. And then we work with them. <laughs> I was like, I don't really know where to begin. It's like, we'll find out. So it was real. It was really just kind of <laughs> baptism by yeah, fire. And it was exactly <laughs> what I wanted, right? Like, I remember saying to Tim, like, uh, I'm really relishing the idea of a lack of structure and just getting at it and not having to report what I'm doing every second and that kind of thing. And he sort of looked at me wryly with a kind of be careful what you wish for sort of thing. And, <laughs> and I really got it. So I think, I think it's much more of an apprenticeship. Um, in some ways you really learn by doing and you definitely learn by watching, or at least I, I really did. So there was less of a kind of, here's a formal training session and more of a, Hey, can I grab you guys for 15 minutes? Cause I just don't know what's going on here. I'd love to find out more about this or you, you know, you do the same thing with the founder. Right. Um, so I, I definitely had to adapt my style a little bit. And I think lots of what I learned at BCG, I took through. Some of it, I think I had to unlearn. Like I had to unlearn feeling, only feeling comfortable if I was handing in work every like like three times a day. Um, in some respects, you could not hand in any output for three weeks. And it, you know, as long as you're out there looking for interesting stuff, doing good analysis, and you know, you might end up passing it. There's no particular reason to, to sort of hand that up. So it has been really different. I would say the one thing that BCG really, really taught me, um, which I've <laughs> which I've really had to take with me, is when you're a BCG, you go and you go into a new client, and you know it's like a clothing manufacturing business or something. And on day one, like in a weird way, you're slight. Obviously, you're not expected to know more about the business than the person that's been there for forty years. But you're meant to be adding value, right? Like you're meant to be able to add something that they haven't been looking at for forty years or whatever it is. Um, so you've got to pick things up incredibly quickly and going straight into a meeting room with someone that's been there for forty years and might necessarily not necessarily particularly want you there. And having to think on your feet and pick everything up quickly was tough. I think again, VC is like that times a million. <laughs> you kind of, you know, you sit down with a with a startup and they're incredibly knowledgeable, like incredibly knowledgeable. Um, about their space and sometimes it can be like a really niche subsector of, uh, of financial services and you know you've got to pick it up quickly and, and sort of realize where the the key points are and get involved with it and you know start bringing your perspective to the table and and along those lines so quite a lot of funds have a value add would you say it's is that ability to pick things up really quickly and kind of decipher how you can help or anything else that that augmentum brings to the table so i think I think Augmentum are very good at doing that because now maybe I'm probably a bit a bit biased here, but I think being sector focused can really help you with that. You, when when we discuss things as a team, as we do every Monday, we talk through everything that everyone's seen. There's not one person in the room that's like the fintech person. You know, there's there's five people in the room, and they have really different opinions. It's not like there's one of them that says, "Yeah, I think this is pretty good." You know, people kind of really really thrash it out and debate it, and I think. It does help, for me certainly, um, 
going into these meetings and having a much deeper, wider context of, of where this company is, is sat and the kind of problems they might face and the kind of problems they might face in two years and five years, because it's just more likely that we've seen more of those kind of companies. Um, and then beyond that, I think a massive thing that that we sort of bring to the table, one, all the partners are, are entrepreneurs first and investors second, so they, they've kind of been there um, right the way through to you know, massive IPOs. But also when you're only looking at fintech, like the network you build up in the space is, is really interesting. So like we have an advisory board, you know, I mean, we call them an advisory board, but they're kind of like, friend, they're like friends of the fund. They've all sort of invested. Um, we sit down with them every every quarter and that's like, you know, Ed Ray, founder of Betfair. It's like the ex-CEO of American Express. It's the CEO of Hiscox for the last 20 years. It's a Silicon Valley investor who specialized in fintechs for the last 25 years. So we can kind of open doors because we've been in that space for a long time. Yeah, uh, pretty pretty amazing contact list you've got <laughs> there, Freddie. Um, and I think also you mentioned earlier to me, not not in this podcast, about the advantages of being a publicly listed company as well, mm. which is that that's a slightly different thing you can offer to startups. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we found in the first fund was fintechs can take a bit longer um, to kind of get that traction. Um, and having a, having a fund that has a life cycle, um, say it's 10 years can be a little bit detrimental to your portfolio companies, right? Because you start imposing your timelines on the companies. Um, and sometimes they need a little bit longer and particularly these days, companies are staying private for much longer. So like, you know, the first, it used to be, you know, six years ago that the first money into exit was like six years on average. And now it's about 13 years. So I think one of the things that we were really keen to do when we set up this new fund was to completely get rid of those timelines. Um, one of the things that I personally really think, I don't know, you know, I'm sure there's plenty that would disagree, is I find it wild that you get these VC classic kind of maths structures where you know if you invest in 10 companies at series a you better believe that all of them are going to make 10x because actually seven out of ten of them are going to completely fail and two out of ten like might pull even and you got to kind of rely on one of them is going to return the whole fund and some um but i think that's nuts like these are really carefully chosen companies with incredible founders with incredible products incredible markets incredible visions to think that you know seven out of ten are kind of doomed to fail i just think it's crazy i think if you give seven out of 10 companies, you know, six years and a load of cash and send them on their way to try and make 10x in the next six years, then yeah, I think that's tough. So we basically thought, get rid of those boundaries, get rid of this kind of like multiple requirement within 10 years. Let's have a permanent capital structure. And one way you can do that is by being publicly listed, because if someone invests in our fund today, you know, they buy shares in Augmentum, they can sell them tomorrow. We're not locking anyone's capital in. Um, which means that we don't have to give everyone's capital back at the end of a period. So when we do invest in a company, we invest like for the long term, for as long as it makes sense. Uh, what it also allows us to do is be quite flexible in the funding. So if we see a company uh, that, let's say, it's like two years off an exit or something, and maybe it will make you know around 2x in that period, a normal VC with a normal structure is, is going to struggle to invest here, right? Because it's that's a 2x return within... You know, the 10 year time run. That's not an amazing return on investment over 10 years. For us, it's the 2x over those two years. And when the value of that exit happens, that money doesn't disappear off to LPs. It gets recycled back into the fund and the fund kind of grows and you move from there. So we operate basically on an IRR basis, not on a multiple basis. So we come in at series A and we can invest completely for the long term. We're not going to restrict anything with our timelines. But also if we see companies that are looking for that little bit of extra funding before exit or looking for a bit of secondary because, you know, founders 
uh, are looking for some liquidity, early investors are looking for liquidity, we can come in at those later stages as well. So we basically, we, we like to call ourselves sort of stay, uh, sector focused on fintech, but completely stage agnostic past Series A. Um, and that's only possible, right, because of the publicly listed structure. And also, as I guess people come through the, the fund, they're kind of getting soft exposure to the public markets, which they might be appealing to later on, right? So when people are investing in momentum, they know that they're investing in these fintechs. And some of these fintechs are going to go on to try an IPO. Um, so one, I guess we've done that ourselves, which is always good good learning. Um, but two, you know, we're giving them exposure to the analysts that are tracking momentum, and we'll start tracking their companies before they kind of get to that point. That is very appealing, I imagine, <laughs> for many founders. And... Um, couple of episodes previously we, we spoke to Emma Steele where she runs an impact fund and she has to do uh, a separate impact report which is really oh, really right. interesting I didn't know that um, so yeah do do listen to that podcast <laughs> um, but what kind of paperwork do you have to do differently to a standard fund where you kind of lock down the capital and once mm. that's done you kind of can forget about it is there is there something else you have to do differently because of how your fund's structured? Mm, good question. It's it's not actually that much extra work. Um, so once every six months, what we do do is we release uh, kind of biannual report and then, of course, the annual report. Um, now, there's all sorts of bits and pieces in that which are like, you know, our management statement on how we think the fund's doing. The chairman will have a comment, you know, blah, 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 all the kind of uh, classic information you'd expect to see. Probably the biggest difference is that we would also release our net asset value of the fund. Um, it kind of dictates pretty much the price of the shares as well. So every six months, we would say, okay, the fund is now worth, we think, you know, okay. hard to know. We think so it's, it's like a rough guess. Yeah. Because it's we, quite hard to do that. It's not It's not easy to do, right? So we, we will put together the valuations report um, and we'll say, you know, this this makes sense for us. Um, we think that this is, this is the net asset value of the fund and we'll do that by kind of adding up the top kind of, you know, uh, companies in the fund and we'll report what our value is in that. And then it's kind of another section for everything else. Um, that's then checked by a big four auditor and then, you know, that goes out to the public market. And, and raising capital, is that slightly different? So that is that is different. Um, the biggest difference in some respects is what happens once you've raised capital. So when we raise capital, it all comes in, you know, on that day, right? So the fund is effectively closed at any one point in time. So imagine there was the IPO, raised 94 million, fund closes. And now anyone that's trading shares is just kind of trading the same shares round and round, just like being on a you know classic uh, publicly listed entity. Now, at a certain point, we will announce that we are going to release new shares. Um, and this new shares, these new shares will effectively amount to new capital in the fund. Um, so there's a pretty intense roadshow while we're out and about kind of raising the awareness. And then there'll be a day and we'll release new shares for anyone that's buying and and kind of once that's happened that new capital will come into the fund the twist is that capital really does come into the fund and sit on the balance sheet so a normal vc when they raise 100 million um that's hard commitments right that's not actual capital on the balance sheet so they can invest that in the normal vc way you know you invest 40% or 50% over the first three years you save the rest for follow-on for us it all comes in and it's sitting there so if we raise too much at once, you know, like good problems to have in a way, but, you know, if we raise 500 million tomorrow, we'd have a lot of cash sitting there um, and we want to deploy that cash really carefully. So what we actually do is we raise capital for the fund in tranches. So we IPO'd at 94 million. Um, we said that we'd be a substantially invested in that in the first sort of 12, 14 months, which we were. It was a pretty busy year. Um, and then we released another prospectus for another 150 million um, in shares. 
um, of which we've we've tapped, I think it was about 26 million from. So we're kind of ratcheting up the fund kind of stage by stage so we don't ever have too much capital sitting around. Um, so that's probably a reason why it's slightly different. You don't do this massive kind of uh, raise um, at the beginning and then kind of draw down on that capital as and when. Do you think, you know, when founders or potential founders look at the share price, do you think that affects them? Because it's all, you know, it's all public versus other VCs. Sometimes you can, you know, hide behind a certain, you know, the, the private market. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, we, we sort of haven't, we haven't seen any problems like that at all, really. I think generally, generally it's kind of more excitement at, at kind of getting exposure to analysts, um, getting access to that super flexible funding. Um, there's never been a time where, you know, a company's been really sort of not wanting to sort of let the public know how we're valuing it. I mean, that that comes out like I mean, regardless when there's a, when there's a new round and kind of the market assesses once again. Um, and generally, our valuation of that company is not going to stray too far from whatever the valuation was when we when we kind of came in, um, just because of the nature of the fact it's really difficult to try and too scientifically kind of figure out what's happened in the last three months. I mean, typically, there's not too much cause for for saying that it's different. So we don't tend to get any problems with that or, or sort of haven't really. Okay, cool. Um, I had a question about founders and, you know, what are your markers of success? I mean, I, I think absolute conviction in a in a completely top quality founder is is sort of a must um there is no universe that exists where we'd invest in a company where we didn't absolutely completely back the founder because i don't think there's many universes that exist where you know a company no matter how good the idea is or how big the market is if the founder isn't really exceptional um it's going to struggle and i think you know it's that hard to set up a successful company so when we see a, a founder that is really exceptional. We're super excited, but that's kind of stage one. Um, can can you define that? Can you define what exceptional means to Augmentum? Yeah, I mean, it's funny actually because founders are all can be one of the things I've learned is that founders can be completely different, um, but remarkable in their own ways. Um, I think what is an absolute requirement is an unbelievable passion in what they're doing. Um, I really think that has to be there. It's it's such a tough thing to do you have to have an underlying drive that goes far beyond just you know turning up and doing your job um and i think it also goes much further than to understand you know how to build a product around their customers whoever that customer might be i mean it really allows them just to kind of dig into the product so i think that's a must i think an unbelievable degree of sort of just grit <laughs> i think is is really required um and i do think that's separate from passion right like you can be really passionate but you've just got to have like the minerals effectively to, to get through the tough times um but sort of with those things you you need to kind of have a, a sort of a, we all kind of always have a section which is around um kind of like coachability uh, we we don't really invest in we don't invest in founders that we have utter conviction that if we sort of let them to get on with it they would do a great job but we're also there to help um so i think when you get that really nice combination of, you know, unbelievably sure-footed, confident, ambitious, driven, energized, passionate, gritty founder, but also they're there to listen and, and sort of there to accept help and allow us to open doors and bits and pieces like that, I think that's really important. Um, and I think overall, and this isn't necessarily what makes an exceptional founder, but for us is absolutely key. We have to have a, like a really good personal relationship with them. I mean, it's, when you invest is really step one of the journey. Um, so again, we just we just couldn't invest unless 
you know, both sides were, were really engaged and, and pleased to have each other on board. And that's why we, we try as much as we possibly can to have as much contact as we possibly can with founders before we invest so that they can get to know us. And on the flip side, what do you think makes a good investor? Again, I think investors can be as multifaceted as, as founders can be. Um, so it's really hard to say what, what's kind of the general rules. I think, I think to be a good investor, obviously, you have to be smart. You have to be able to pick things up quickly. Um, and I think there's a certain kind of smartness that I'm definitely sort of trying to learn as I go. I don't think it's a smartness that you kind of get from reading books. You kind of get a feel uh, for what works, how to interact with people, how to find pain points, see what's important. You know, sometimes you can sit on a board and some won't say anything for the whole meeting and then they'll sit back and say the most important question of the whole the whole time there. So it's it's that kind of sense of getting to the root of what's important and what's what's going to turn the dial. I think you can waste a lot of time and a lot of energy um, you know, putting good points forward, but sometimes there's only a few things that really matter. So getting to what really matters, I think this one, uh, this sounds a bit kind of um, like airy-fairy and lovely and, and whatever, but I, I honestly think actually... I'm going to flip, go back and say, I think the most important thing in an investor and then the same, same founder as well is, is integrity. I just, I don't think I've ever seen, I've certainly not been exposed to an industry where that just is so self-evidently important um, because it always, it always kind of comes out in the wash because you're going through really good times, really tough times. It's a really interconnected ecosystem, being straightforward and honest Um kind of just always seems to to benefit and and I don't think it takes long for that to come out if you're not um and I think there's so much of the relationship between investors and founders and investors and other investors and founders and other founders is based on trust um in such an insanely fast moving industry having high integrity throughout is is probably actually the most important thing yeah i actually read a stat that a VC startup relationship is longer than the average American marriage. And wow. I suppose <laughs> with Augmentum, it's <laughs> even longer. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you kind of make sure there's yeah, integrity. Go on, go on forever. No one <laughs> yeah. is betraying yeah. one another. So that's that's really interesting. And I know you, you said that reading, you know, with certain skills, reading isn't going to get you there. But is there any events or books that you would recommend either a founder to read or someone looking to get into the industry? Mm. Okay, well, for for someone looking to get into the industry, you know what, I, I, I really benefited from like super basic books when I was getting in because there's so much in the industry that's unbelievably opaque. So the way I learned about the industry was, I guess in other ways, having as many coffees as I could from people and kind of asking them about it. Um, I guess reading as much as I could around like deals that were happening and startups. I mean, that, that really helps. You kind of get a sense for the ecosystem. But I kind of basically, like, you know, like VC for dummies and things like that was, I was genuinely really useful, right? Like you kind of understand, you know, what some of the key terms are and what it means that when you do go for a coffee, you kind of roughly know, uh, roughly know what's going on. And then I do quite like reading blogs. So I, I'm, a, I'm a real sucker for the blog AVC. Um, and that's basically uh, Fred Wilson, an investor out in in uh, in New York. Kind of every day, like every day, he posts a blog. It's nuts. Um, and some uh, sometimes it's really nice things, just like what him and his family are up to that weekend. And sometimes it's like insanely insightful stuff um, on uh, on investing. And there's lots of kind of heartfelt lessons along the way, as well as you know quite technical things. So I quite like reading that. I check in every day just to see what old Fred's up to. Um, weirdly, I've actually crossed paths with him twice. He was out in Budapest when I was there and out in Paris. And I only found out till the next day when I went on ABC. So I could have maybe met him. He's like my hero. So uh, so next time. Shout out to him right now. 
Yeah, well, I know he listens, so he's, uh, <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be tracking. So you'll see it on the blog tomorrow. <laughs> you'll be getting a DM. Or yeah. <laughs> I'm in Soho. Where you at, Fred? And so you've just raised a second tranche. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that you're hiring? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, it means that we were hiring. Um, ah, so we have just hired Ellen as an associate um, and Rahul as an analyst. Um, so the team is bulking out, which I'm very pleased about because for a long time it was just me. And so we're not looking to hire immediately now. But look, I mean, the fund keeps growing like we keep rolling on. So the you know, we aim to be a 500 million pound fund in the next you know, three, four, five years. And we're 140 or whatever at the minute now. So we're going to keep going to market. We're going to keep raising. We're going to keep growing. Uh, so yeah, no. What what watch this space? Amazing. And are you looking for someone sort of as the next hire with a fintech specialism? Is that your sort of requirement for uh, a new starter, or is it other qualities? So, I mean, it's I don't want to speak completely on on behalf of the fund. Um, and I think and I think you know what we are constantly looking for is a people to balance out the team. Um, so in a way, it'll be hard to, you know, if you look at the team and think, oh, I'm exactly like that person, then actually, you know, we've got that person. And we're, we're always in for as sort of as much diversity no as Freddy's, possible. No Freddy's, please. No Freddy's, there's only one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I think, I think we're always looking for complementary skill sets. Um, I just, it's just hyper important, right? Um, so as much diversity as possible is, is absolutely key. Outside of that, look, I mean, I think it's great. And this is a skill set, right? If you come to the table with an intense financial services knowledge, that can be super beneficial. I think when when I was running the interview process, there's basically three things that I just think I needed to see. And then we could build from there on people's like special strengths. So I needed to see that you were quick and smart and could pick pick things up and think on your feet and analyze things. I mean, you just have to, right? That's that's a big part of the job. Um, I needed to see that, you could build relationships. Um, that doesn't mean you have to be crazy extrovert out and about and running around and l- absolutely loving conferences. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a, you deal with people. It's a, it's a massive people business. Um, so that's really key, right? You need to, people need to, be able to trust you and want to work with you and you know, just be a nice, kind of be a nice person to be honest. I think was, was a really big category. That's like a whole category for me. That's category number two. Um, and then I think category number three, was just like impetus like if you join the fund tomorrow um can you just get cracking because everyone is busy everyone is running their own channels and everyone is completely on hand to support and help and do everything but you know it's we're we're structured in some respects but in other respects like the great thing about joining the fund is you are you are given in, like an unbelievable amount of trust and responsibility from the moment you step in the room. Like you were, you were hired for a reason. And at that point, you know, that's because we have complete conviction that you can go and do your job, but whatever you do, just be kind of like self propelling. Um, I think, and I think actually it's really tough, like to find people that have all three of those because it's not also because as much as anything else, like it's not necessarily suited to everyone. Um, definitely a question I ask people is what, what are you most scared of about coming to VC or what, what do you most not want? Um, because I think I learned a lot when I came in. I think all the things that I found, all the things that I loved the most about VC, I found the hardest as well. Like I love that I didn't have to produce output every second, but I found that hard as well. Like it's, it's tough when you're, you know, out there, you know, looking around, finding interesting companies, analyzing things. And three, four weeks later, two months later, you don't have loads to show for it because you found some really interesting companies, but it didn't all come through. And, 
you know, you're constantly meeting people and sometimes you're tired and you go to, you know, a nice drinks event, there'll be lovely, lovely people there, but oh, you don't have the minerals to go and like go around and chat to a load of people, but you're on the, you know, you're working hard. So there's, but I love all those things. Like I love them, but I also find them really tough at, at sort of certain times. So I think you kind of have to come in with your eyes open. I, I think in some respects, it's one of the most stressful kind of like jobs you can do because a lot of it is off your own back. Um, and a lot of the time that's awesome. And sometimes that's tough. So I think you kind of have to, you have to want it and you have to want it for the right reasons. So we're going to go to a question from one of our listeners. Are you ready, Freddie? I'm ready. <laughs> nice. I'm ready. <laughs> so what are, uh, what problems prevent growth in fintech startups at seed and series A? Mm. Coming in with the punchy questions. I'm going to, so if I may, I'm going to answer, answer the series A one, at least to start with, because I think that's, I mean, that's where we really start focusing. So I, I'm kind of a little bit more familiar with that. Series A can be a lot of things, a lot of different people. I think for me, series A is kind of like, you've got product customer fit, right? Like you've got a product out there, you've got some customers on board. Uh, you can start looking at the the sort of, the metrics for how you've acquired the customers, the revenue you're getting back, what kind of churn you're getting. But it's product customer fit at this point. Like it's not what I would consider product market fit. You haven't pushed it out to the wider market. And I kind of think that's what you want to get to at Series B. You kind of want proof that actually what you've done in the last 12, 18 months is, you know, taken a product that works for some customers and shown that you can scale that. And I think one of the problems you can face when trying to show that growth is basically focusing on the wrong thing. Sometimes you see people and they've you know they've got their first you know i don't know a thousand customers or whatever it is if it's consumer facing and they get obsessed with you know why aren't people that people that aren't using the product why aren't they using the product um and sometimes actually what you want to be looking for is why are the people that are using your product still using it and why do they keep coming back and what are the ones like the ones that do keep coming back and double down on that and really work out on how to push that out broader uh, more broadly so i think i think one of the major challenges is figuring out what to focus on when you're pushing from product customer fit to product market fit. And it is not always the case that it's, okay, well, hold on, I haven't captured this big bunch of the market. So how do I kind of like adapt the product to suit their needs? Um, actually, sometimes what you need to do is do the things that you're doing well, even better. Um, so I think that's a big thing. I think another big thing is not so much of a problem of you know, that stops growth, but growing sustainably is like massive. Um, I think taking your eye off the unit economics can be absolutely killer. Um, if you get to series B and you've achieved massive growth, but the unit economics have gone wild, like your cost of acquisition is super high. Um, what kind of customers are you getting on board, right? Like growth isn't necessarily good growth. Um, and I think that's something that is really often overlooked and is the first thing I'll look at in a series B deck is, uh, or when I dig a little bit deeper is who are the customers? Like, are they churning? Are they staying on? Um, are they the right kind of customers that you want? Um, because sometimes you can bulk up those numbers and that is not sustainable. And then I think the the final thing is make sure when you are growing, you're getting the right customers or you're monitoring your customers and seeing what they're doing. Because uh, that can be a little bit of a, a sort of hidden hidden danger. Great answer <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> and final question how can people get in touch with you um well so there's a, i guess there's a number of ways if it's like more general because you don't just want to talk to me you want to talk to the to anyone at the fund so there's there's always kind of info at augmentum.vc um and anything that goes to that 
and also is like, you know, for the attention of, of Freddie will just come straight to me like immediately. If you're a founder with a, with a, with a company at, at any stage, we would always love to chat. Um, and we have a more specific um, address for that. So that's pitch at augmentum.vc. Um, and again, I mean, any one of the team, you know, we're not a massive team, right? It's pretty simple to get to us. Any one of the team will pick that up. But if for whatever reason you wanted to go straight to me again, just address it to me um, and I'll pick it up straight away. Fantastic. But um, yeah, big congratulations to Charlotte Dugdale because she gets to go for a coffee or a call with you. So thank All right. you very, very <laughs> Looking much. Looking forward to it. <laughs> yes. Um, so thank you so much, Freddie. Um, we've really enjoyed having you. We have. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us on Twitter at associated underscore pod, Instagram at associated podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask our speakers, please jot us a line at associatedpodcast at gmail.com. So please subscribe, share, like, and see you all next week. Thanks.